This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome, welcome to Science Friction. Natasha Mitchell here with a fresh season of shows for 2020. It has been a sombre start to the year and I'm sending you courage and love if your life has been turned upside down by the bushfires across Australia this summer. I'm thinking of friends in that very situation right now and especially of those working to save the countless animals burnt and hurt and, and starving because of the fires. On Science Friction today, a really special story for you. It's about what happens when life throws you a whopping curveball and when roles get upended. I wanted it gone. I didn't want to have not only it smouldering away in my pelvis, but it also smoulders away in your head. It's always in your head. As much as I could rationalise and sound I'm very scientific in my approach to things, and it wasn't a problem every day, but it would come to me at three o'clock in the morning when I started worrying about all the other things I worry about at three o'clock in the morning. You're seeing parts of them and their body that they will never really see themselves or get to know. It's an extraordinary thing. That, that was true, kind of, but it, is, it still amazes me today that people want to see the inside bits, you know. <laughs> it's, oh, can I have my video? I want to share it on social media, you know. And oh, I've seen all your videos on YouTube. Can you make sure my prostate goes up on YouTube? In this episode, it's a frank and fearless conversation about an experience men don't often talk publicly about. So let's meet the scientist and the surgeon. I'm interested in nature. This is Professor Rob Ramsey. He's a molecular biologist and a leading cancer scientist. And on the side, he also makes art. He's a black belt in karate, rides his bike. He's a husband, father of two children. But trying to understand how the natural world works was a first love of his. And I've always been driven by trying to understand biology. And I'm also a little bit inclined to like machinery and structures and the way things work and essentially cells are machines and I like the way they operate and they really have so many different facets to them and of course in disease machinery goes wrong. For me the very first day I was in an operating theatre watching people uh, take out cancerous lumps actually as it was then, breast cancer, I was instantly captivated. This is Professor Declan Murphy, a leading urologist and cancer surgeon. He's been in Australia for over a decade, but you can hear his Irish lilt. And even though it's cancer he's dealing with every day, like Rob, he's loved his job since day dot. I was in the operating theatre, I was meeting these patients before and after as a medical mm. student and honestly uh, I just became uh, almost overwhelmed by the idea that people will allow other people to do surgery on them, that it's such a huge privilege to be allowed to do surgery. But I was fascinated by urology because it's, a, it's quite a, a big field mm. that we work in. It's everything from the kidneys down through the bladder and the prostate and the penis and the testicles are all uh, areas in the urology a domain that can be affected by cancer. Now, Declan and Rob happen to be colleagues at the Peter McCallum or Peter Mac Cancer Centre in Melbourne. As a scientist, Rob's focused on, amongst other tricky conundrums, developing vaccines that target gastrointestinal cancers like colorectal cancer. 
As a surgeon, Declan's leading the way with using robotics in the operating theatre. And often in the cancer arena, you'll find that scientists and surgeons just don't traditionally mix much. But Rob and Declan, like many others at Peter Mac, are different because they want to do science that better reflects the needs of people with cancer and the clinicians treating them. I remember being at a hospital where Declan was doing a tag team robotic procedure on a patient that was having some colorectal surgery plus a prostatectomy. And I was there on a Saturday morning with my ice bucket collecting some samples for a clinical trial we are doing. They're in the operating room because these patients have agreed that it would be part of a trial. In that case, that was a patient with two cancers, quite complex work. But Rob wanted some tissue, uh, some cancerous tissue to take into the lab. And I was watching these two guys work seamlessly together. It's something, it's a kind of beauty in any group of people that do things well together and there's almost a subliminal communication. They know what's coming next. They don't bump into each other. The theatre staff are all expert. They work as a team. It's really like a, a Formula One team at a pit stop. And I've never, I've never worked in a centre where you will have a, a professor of colorectal science uh, in the operating room with you. So, um, And we get used to that at Peter Mac. It's the same for prostate, it's the same for melanoma, it's the same for breast. And, and I just find it an extraordinary environment. I, I've never worked in a place that has that degree of translational, multidisciplinary care uh, where people are there asking the questions, taking the tissue, doing trials, etc., etc. And it, it's just a, extraordinary. I can do some cool things in my lab. No question. I have been a geneticist for most of my research life and we can do cool things with genes in cells and also indeed animals and you can find great science out of that. But does it always reflect what's going on in a patient? And the answer is sometimes but not always. And I want to do the always. It is relevant to what happens in a patient. It's all about the patient in the end. Hasn't always been like that though, has no, it, Declan? No, it hasn't. So, these two are colleagues, leaders in their fields in cancer, but then came a sudden curveball and a role change. The scientist and the surgeon were about to become the surgeon and his patient. Here's Rob. I have a great GP. I've been going to him for quite a long time. Really insightful, considerate kind of guy. We've, we always have a great chat when I go to visit him. I have a checkup every six months for basically blood pressure. I have a, a level that cannot be controlled just by exercise and diet. And he's chosen to have PSA tests too. PSA stands for prostate-specific antigen. It's a protein which can be elevated in men for various reasons, prostate cancer being one of them. Some guys avoid testing their PSA levels, but as we've heard, Rob is a lover of information. He looks for it and he leans into it. So over time, every couple of years I get it tested and it just kept rising a little bit. At one stage, it got to a level where I thought maybe it's getting a bit, bit high and I actually was referred to Declan. We had a look, nothing to see there, but let's be keep an eye on it. And then about two years ago, another test, Monday morning test, Tuesday morning phone call, my GP said, Rob, it's about time you go back and see Declan. I'm not happy about this PSA level. So Rob's colleague at Peter Mac, Declan Murphy, becomes his urologist. So I said, OK, let's have a look. And progressively, we went through all the tests. Initially, an MRI that I remember 
sitting next to Declan looking at his um, laptop. We looked at the imaging. I've been in lots of meetings where I've looked at those images before. I thought, I don't like that shadow very much either. And he said, well, I think we need to get a biopsy. And then he did. I remember it was during Christmas, wasn't it? And yep. um, yeah, so it was, we could, you know. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. And here's a prostate <laughs> biopsy. I knew I was on this journey. As soon as I saw the image, I thought, this looks suspicious. We at least need to find out what it is. And then phone call or message from Declan saying, it's Gleason stage seven. No doubt I had prostate cancer. And that meant... I had to make a decision about which direction I went after that. So suddenly, Rob the cancer scientist becomes Rob the cancer patient. And then he went through the whole process. We did the PET scan and then we discussed whether surveillance might be an option. Is this a cancer we can leave alone? Because there's been a a tradition of uh, invasive procedures early on in this process and men have suffered the consequences of that. Lifelong impotence, urinary problems, the whole bit. That's shifted now. Oh, totally. When When I started training, a diagnosis of prostate cancer equaled treatment for prostate cancer. There was no concept of you could leave the cancer there, you know. Whereas now it's the polar opposite. It means that a process will now start to figure out, is this a threat to this patient? And how will he and his loved one balance up the success of surgery or radiation or other treatments in terms of cancer versus the predictable side effects? So for us, the first thing is always, do we need to do anything? We found a cancer. Meanwhile, Rob was adjusting to his new identity. Instead of looking down the microscope at cancer, it was inside him. That said, once a scientist, always a scientist, so he was also about to become the subject of his own living experiment. I am relatively scientific by nature. (laughs) Clearly. When you saw that shadow, though, what did you feel? I found it interesting. I know this sounds weird, but I just find the whole journey fascinating. But did Declan think twice about taking on a colleague who knows a lot about cancer as a patient? Ten years ago, I found it very nerve-wracking having colleagues uh, coming in and saying, oh, Declan, do you mind having a look at my PSA or doing a biopsy? But now I've done it a lot and um, I've listened very carefully to what colleagues say, the language they use and so on. But in Rob's case, Declan was about to guide him through a very big decision because this was a cancer that couldn't be left to a watch-and-wait approach. And the big options for us usually are surgery to take this thing out or treat it with some form of radiation treatment. And um, uh, we discussed that with Rob and one of our radiation team uh, discussed with him. So you opted for a a radical prostatectomy, so that's total removal of the prostate. Did you need to do that? I think that was the right procedure. It was confined, but it was as hot as blazes on the PET scan. It was at a point where probably over the next three to five years, it would have moved on. I wanted it gone. What did you have to weigh up? Because this is major surgery with potentially major consequences. Yes, there is always a risk that you will have permanent issues with incontinence. There's also the issues of impotency. Um, The other thing I was more concerned about initially was would I be able to get back to karate and ride my bicycle? I know that sounds a little bit trite, but so for me... So sex and, quite... and having a wee is one thing, but you actually had priorities here. Well, in a way, having a wee was associated with being able to do karate because mm-hmm. I thought it would be unhelpful if I urinated on my colleagues in the, in the dojo. I knew about the impotency risks and, of course, it 
it's very much a partnership decision. And I remember going to a group session with a number of other couples at Peter Mac, and we were given a lot of information about what to expect. Many of the people there were with their partners, the blokes were with their partners. But there was a couple of guys there a little bit younger than us and they were there by themselves. And I felt for them because this is a decision that can have a big impact upon quality of life. I talked this through with my wife and she's a scientist, she's a PhD and very rational, much more rational than me. We talked it through and she knew what the consequences were. Perhaps she thought they might be an opportunity rather than a problem, I don't know. <laughs> but you need to talk it through and you need to be in a psychologically good place to start that. And I accepted it and um, I'm here now. Mm. Yeah. So he made a decision uh, to have surgery. And in that environment of a colleague who's trusting you and I said go and get a more second opinions. A very yeah, knowledgeable yeah, yeah. colleague. And you know you, I think you have to uh, accept that he and and uh, and his family have put confidence in how you're going to manage them and say well we'll we'll just make sure we do a, the you know as best a job as we usually do. You wanted to have Declan as your surgeon. Yeah. That was a clear decision for very you. Very clear. Yeah. Why? I trust him. He's also a real gun at this. He's done many radical prostatectomies. He Thousands. Yeah. He's pretty impressive in this department and he's certainly an international expert. Um, but it's the team around him that I trusted as well. But I did say to him one, one thing interesting. I said, okay, well, uh, we'll do a prostatectomy then. Um, uh, would you like to have it done uh, at Peter Mac uh, or at uh, Epworth? And he said, I'll have a think about it. Uh, and then he came back to me and said, um, you know what? He said, uh, I've, I've cycled into Peter Mac uh, every, every day for the past 20 plus years. It feels like home to me. It feels like my family surrounding me there. Uh, I'm very happy to come in there and, and have my surgery in the building that he works in and recover and go home mm. the next Day. I don't go to work. I go to the lab. It's very different. Peter Mac's not like that to me. It's a kind of home, a second family, people I trust, the best at the, at the job. Why not use the A-team? So here you are. You've been in you know, science for something like 40 years, uh, cancer, leading cancer researcher. And now you're entering this whole world through a very different portal, the portal of the patient. Yep. And... Being a patient, being a cancer patient is a very particular and weird identity to have to assume, yeah. and it's a weird world to occupy. Yep. So what was that head shift like for you? I've got two thoughts about that. Patients are not their cancer. So I always describe this as a patient with a particular kind of cancer. They're not a prostate cancer patient. It's not your whole identity. And I thought, well, what, what can I get out of this? Well, I can learn what it's like to be a patient. So when I'm talking to patient groups about research, I can have a lot more empathy with them when I'm talking about it. And the other thing is I learn about the procedure in a way you don't quite observe when you're in the operating room. When you're on the table or on the, in the, the pre-operation phase where you're talking to the anaesthetist, it's a different experience. And I think you learn a lot about what it is to do that journey. And I thought it was interesting. 
And so came the day for Rob's surgery, a radical prostatectomy to remove the cancer and his whole prostate gland. Declan was controlling the sophisticated robot that wielded the scalpel. A radical prostatectomy for prostate cancer involves, um, I think, two things. One is you have to disconnect the prostate from all of these uh, really unfortunately placed surrounding structures such as the sphincter muscle of the urethra, the bladder, the rectum, the pelvic sidewall, etc. So part A, it's disconnect. It's right there underneath. Oh yeah, it wasn't urethra, meant to be. penis, oh, yeah. rectum, like it's right <laughs> Nerves, there tucked in everything. right in the middle. Not meant to be interfered with, you know. So, crucial um, for erections, yeah, crucial yeah. for semen. Yeah, everything. So it's in an awkward spot. So the, the a prostatectomy involves, first of all, doing your the best you possibly can to disconnect the prostate from these surrounding structures uh, and getting the cancer out, you know, uh, but with minimising damage and trauma to those very important surrounding structures. Um, and then the second part is joining things back together because once you've disconnected it and taken it out, we get a, a beautiful view down there where the prostate used to be, but there's also a gap where the, the bladder needs to be joined back to the water pipe because uh, pro- you pee through the prostate. You know, so there's a gap, yeah. And then that's, again, this is really, really nice to do with the with the robot because you can, you know, uh, this is right down in the root of the pelvis, difficult to reach otherwise with open surgery, at least in our hands, and uh, we can be right down there. The telescope is within a, a centimetre, a tiny little instrument, so joining it back together is very nice to do. But that's it in a nutshell. You know, you got to disconnect it and, and take it out, and then you got to join things back together, and you have to try and balance all these aims. Number one, you want to try and get this significant cancer out, uh, and number two, you're trying to make sure the patient regains continence, uh, and ideally as soon as possible. Uh, and number three, you have to do your best to see can we maintain uh, some of the associated nerves and structures that might help him uh, recover uh, sexual function in the longer term. At one point, though, Rob, you did say to Declan, "This is an uncomfortable moment. Don't, oh, yes. don't stuff it up." Yeah, I suppose it was a reflection of my deep anxiety about it. I was more worried about it than I possibly let on. And I subsequently apologised to Declan after. It was a terrible thing to say to a colleague who was probably also a bit anxious about stuffing it up. Well, (laughs) I totally ignored it. It went straight over my head. You know, it's part of normal banter with Rob Ramsey. But, you know, I did reckon it's very different when he's come into that hospital every day for 20, 30 years. He comes into the operating room in scrubs as part of his research. Uh, But now it's totally different. He's coming in with a a gown and he's got a a label on his hand identifying him. It's It's very different than you should be, you know, it it provokes different anxiety, I think, compared to just a a regular patient who has normal anxiety through that. But I think it's different because he's in that same operating room as part of his day job, pair of scrubs on, but now it's different. Cancer is Rob's job. He knows the terrain, or so he thought. I knew what mostly was going to happen, but I was pretty surprised by the catheter. That was a pretty amazing, (laughs) unexpected experience. So this is having a catheter put in your urethra so that you can wee. Yep, yep. Had no idea what to expect with that. People explain things to you and you may listen, but you will not know. Very interesting. (laughs) And what was it like? Really uncomfortable in the way the whole time and... um, very difficult to go for a walk Uh, and one of the greatest uh, moments was having it taken out and I remember one fellow in this group I was describing where we we got together to be given some information before we went into the operation he described it as was better than sex having it taken out I thought that's pretty weird everyone laughed but I think he was probably right sweet sweet relief (laughs) 
But back to that operating theatre where the sciencing didn't stop for Rob, even when he went under the knife. He was about to become the subject of his own ongoing experiments. I'm very interested in surgery research. I love the technology that underpins surgical procedures. The robot is an engineering feat. This is the Da Vinci robot. Yeah. I've been doing some research with other colleagues looking at the way you blow up the abdomen. So the robot can work within that operating space or if you're doing a, a standard laparoscopic procedure, there's a working space so you can get around the organs and make sure that you're not damaging any surfaces, etc. Most have gravitated to using carbon dioxide. That's the safest. And it comes out of a gas bottle, cold, dry, it's clean, and it's really great because it doesn't interact with some of the procedures which actually generate sparks. And of course, if you to use oxygen, You'd blow that everything could go up. very badly. And indeed, very there badly. are examples where that has oh, happened. Oh, dear. So that gas comes out of the bottle like an arctic blast, it, and it dries all the surfaces within the abdomen. And I've been doing research for some time trying to modify that. And one of the, pr the approaches is you add water to the carbon dioxide, sterile water, and you warm it up so you humidify it. Provide water so you don't dry the surfaces. And we've known for a long time that you can dry those surfaces and do damage to the cells. If those cells are very damaged, then they delaminate, they come away from the surfaces. And if you've got two surfaces where there's delaminated cells, they stick together and you get adhesions. Those damaged surfaces are fertile ground for tumour cells to grow on. So I've been doing this kind of work for some time. In mice, in, in pigs? In mice and, and more recently in pigs. And I showed this work to Declan. I said, I'd prefer you not to use one of the devices which is involved in what's called insufflation or blowing up the abdomen. I showed him the data. It's very, it's published and it's it's sound, mm. peer reviewed. And he said, I didn't appreciate how much was going on there. And he just lis listened to the data. It was an extraordinary thing, really. We know that Rob had been doing this work predominantly in colorectal cancers, but some of the work, really high-quality science he was doing and publishing in these journals were making people sit up around the world and go, oh, you know, uh, we need to, th you know, we think about the big picture. The patient's asleep. We use fancy technology to cut the tumour out. But there are these incremental things that happen around the periphery. So I like that, bring him bringing his own science into his own experience, but it does affect how we do everything. I mean, surgeons have healthy and robust egos, Declan Murphy. So I won't have you, you say that, you, Natasha. <laughs> How could you say that? <laughs> yeah, you you were being politely requested to consider modifying your technique. Well, by a quite higher power on the matter, actually. But uh, no, uh, you know, um, lifelong learning is a really important part of, uh, of everything we do in life, but no more so in, in someone who's a cancer specialist. And even looking at my surgical logbook operations I did when I was training in surgery that just don't exist now, especially in breast cancer. When I was, you know, we all did training in all sorts of surgery. Breast cancer, like, wow, I looked at all these patients we operated on doing mastectomies and think, wow, I'm sure. 90% of those women, if they were uh, uh, being diagnosed today and managed today, they would not be having a mastectomy. Uh, they'd be having targeted they'd have molecular profiling because you're going to get your hormone status. They'd have a targeted therapy, they'd have uh, radiotherapy and then a lumpectomy. 
Um, so I th- we don't mind, therefore, uh, constantly challenging ourselves or being challenged about what's best practice. But it is really important to have good evidence to inform changes in practice. And that's why on that little example, when Rob showed stuff, went, yep, that is high quality evidence. It's not just, oh, I fancy a change. I'm going to use this thing instead of that thing. And the other aspect of his science um, uh, background coming into it, he said, I, I want a photograph. Uh, he said, uh, I want a photo in the operating theater when the uh, the prostate comes out, you know, like when you catch a fish. Um, so his anaesthetist uh, was charged with, uh, as soon as we'd extracted the, pro- the prostate, I uh, held it up uh, in front of the camera and in front of my face. <laughs> he wanted this this trophy photo of his prostate. What did you ever do with that? Don't tell me. It's on the mantelpiece. Um, yeah. Amongst the family photos. Yeah. Um, no, it's not anywhere special. Uh, <laughs> the surgery was a success. Rob is in the clear now. And other things have changed too. What's changed in your body? I'm a bit more aware of it. I look after it maybe even a bit better than I did before. I have my continence. I, I'm not back to complete um, sexual function, but it's, it's okay. There's ways to help. But I'm in a good headspace, and I'm probably in a better headspace now than I was before I went to surgery. And the reason is I had a bit of time off, and I got to reflect and put a bit more attention on enjoying the good things around me. And it wasn't because I was going to die. I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking that what an enormous privilege it is to get through a serious operation out the other side, still be able to work, still be able to do all the things that I care about. And I have much greater clarity about how great it is to be alive and one thing that has happened this year which has been quite funny i've discovered the weekend has two days in it and don't go into the lab routinely on the weekend how has having prostate cancer changed your work as a cancer research scientist what it's done is it's made me much more impatient about getting clinical trials moved along i am very focused on things which will change patients outcomes now everything you do in partnership is going to be better than doing by yourself and that's what I've got out of it I'm one of the lucky ones but it was because of my GP blokes need to have a good GP and they need to go and see them and keep an eye on their health because having a high PSA level doesn't mean you have prostate cancer it doesn't mean that you're going to have to have any procedure but it's one sentinel it's pretty easy to do you can monitor it and over time your GP will direct you in the right way to whether you need a specialist or whether you're fine to go on as as normal unfortunately very many men still will face of death from prostate cancer many listeners out there will be all too aware of it but thankfully of all the men diagnosed with prostate cancer nowadays the vast majority will survive their cancer and indeed very many of them will not even need treatment for their cancer but please you know get out there and find out about it in the first place uh, get into the GP and of course while you're there you know this was my own tale when I was getting my PSA checked uh, and my GP who's very good as well said yeah sure Declan we'll check your PSA now let's check that blood pressure and the cholesterol and the, what about your BMI and, How and, and how's the mental health you know exactly yeah no PSA great cholesterol not so good actually <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) But again, so there's an important message for us men, you know, I'm I'm in my late 40s. um, Get out there and and know your numbers actually is a great hashtag that runs in Canada uh, aimed at men. It's run by the the ice hockey group out there and they want a message to men who like ice hockey. It's like, you know, footy here, playing off the fact that they know the statistics of of their favourite player, their favourite team, but do they know their blood pressure? 
uh, do they know their cholesterol? And so it's I, I like that idea that we as men out there listening, we should know your numbers, you know. Don't be obsessed necessarily, but please don't be blinded to the fact your cholesterol is 7 or your PSA level is 20 and, and your dad died of prostate cancer. You know, you're in a special box that you should know your numbers and know your risk. I think it's good to remind ourselves constantly what a humbling privilege it is to be allowed to do this type of work and that's not just doing surgery which I think is incredibly a humbling experience to be allowed to do but you know for for a patient to come into your your GP practice and say I'm happy for you to examine my chest and listen to my my heart and then prescribe me some powerful medications I'm going to go down and take them it is an enormous responsibility being allowed to advise a, a fellow person on that and and to take it right to the extent of making holes into people and, and taking out lumps of the body I just every single day what a privilege and, and it's humbling and uh, it's not just saying that it's something we say all the time to our youngsters as they're getting through don't forget what a what a hum- humbling pleasure a privilege it is to be allowed to do this type of work never never forget it well the surgeon and the scientist and the robot and the robot lovely to have you on the show thank you so much for joining me and, and good luck congratulations absolute pleasure thank, thank you, you. So much insight and generosity. Thanks for your openness, cancer scientist Professor Rob Ramsey and uro-oncologist Professor Declan Murphy, both with the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Science Friction is a radio show on ABC Radio National, a podcast which usually has a little more in it and a website which is where you can catch up with me and the program. I'll catch you next week. Thank you this week to sound engineer Chrissy Miltiardu. Have a great one. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.